0: I have been told that there is Children's Church for ages 3 to 6, so if you want to head back to Chelsea, she's waiting there for you, kids ages 3 to 6, you can head to the back. As they go, I would invite you to bow with me as we enter God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to open your Word together. We pray that you would speak to our hearts through it. Speak through me, your servant, I pray. May the words be yours. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning, we have come to part 16 in our series in Mark, which I've entitled, Who is Jesus' True Family? An Associated Press article shared the true story of one Tammy Harris from Roanoke, Virginia, who at the age of 21 learned that she was in fact adopted. And so she decided to begin the search for her biological mother. However, after a year's search, she'd had no success, not even any leads to go on. And so despairing that she would ever meet her biological mother, she all but gave up. But there were two things that Tammy didn't know. The first thing was that her mother, Joyce Schultz, had also been trying to locate her for over 20 years, almost from the point she had given her up for adoption. The second thing she didn't know was that her mother was much, much closer to her than she could have possibly imagined. For one day, while at work, Tammy was talking with another co-worker about her futile search for her biological mother. Meanwhile, another older co-worker happened to overhear their conversation And while she couldn't believe her ears, walking over to them, she said, excuse me, but I couldn't help but overhear that you've been searching for your mother. Well, it just so happens that I've been searching for my daughter. Well, soon they were comparing birth certificates. And when Tammy finally realized that, yes, Joyce, her co-worker, someone she had rubbed shoulders with for over a year, was in fact her mother, they fell into each other's arms. We held on for the longest time, Tammy said. It was one of the best days of my life. Now, in much the same way, oftentimes our true family is not who we expect. And yet, they are closer to us than we realize. For as we will learn in today's text, that though our biological families, yes, they are important. They are a part of our our lives. There is a spiritual family. A family that is even more important, and that is our family of faith. So turn with me this morning to our text, Mark chapter 3 and verses 31 to 34. Here we will first learn who Jesus' true family is not, then who Jesus' true family is, and finally what being a member of Jesus' true family of faith means for our life. Now today's story actually begins A few verses back in Mark chapter 20, pardon me, Mark chapter 3, verse 20 and 21. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. Now here I want to emphasize for us something very important that I think we often overlook when we study the life of Christ. I want to emphasize the point that Jesus has his own flesh and blood biological family on earth that he rubbed shoulders with just like the rest of us. So often we sort of put him up on this pedestal as though he didn't live an ordinary life like the rest of us, and yet he did. He knew exactly what it was to live in a family. And so this first 30 years of his life, remember, was the bulk of his time on earth. His ministry was relatively short, three and a half years approximately, but he spent 30 years of his life together with this earthly family. Now this family included, of course, his mother, Mary, and we learn in the other Gospels that he had uh, four younger half-brothers, of course, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, also known as Jude, the short book that bears his name. Now Jesus also had, we learn in the Gospel of Matthew, at least two sisters, and possibly more, as it simply uses the term plural, aren't his sisters here with us also. They remain unnamed. Now of course, from the Christmas narrative of Jesus' virgin birth, we know that he is the Son of God, so not the son of Joseph, and he is the, the oldest child, child of Mary. And Joseph's family as his adoptive father. So we know that as his adoptive earthly father, Joseph was a carpenter. Jesus learned the family trade of carpentry underneath him. And so at some point unknown to us, Joseph dies. And so the obligation would have fallen on him as the oldest son in the family that at whatever point Joseph died, Jesus would have then taken on the responsibility of the family business, running the carpentry business, and he therefore would have been the primary caregiver or, pardon me, provider for the family. Now, to fully understand this text and what Jesus is teaching within it, we must understand here that at this point, Jesus' younger brothers, they view him as nothing more or less than their big brother. They, they view him as nothing more or less than the same brother that they have known their entire lives. So just think about it in context for yourself for a moment. If you have a big brother or even a big sister, uh, perhaps you're the oldest one in the family and you have siblings, but think about how you think about your big brother or your siblings, right? You'll you'll have some warm feelings towards them. You, You know, you'll have some funny stories. You may have a few axes to grind with them from over the years of bumps and bruises along the way, but overall, they're just your family. And no matter how much success or little they have in life, it'll never change the fact that you view them as your brother. And that's the way his own brothers felt about him. So we're given an insight into this brotherly view towards Jesus and their attitude towards him in John chapter 7. And I'll read that for you. There in verses 2 to 4, we read this. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, Leave Galilee and go to Judea, so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Now, at first glance, these sound like really encouraging words, don't they? Like his brothers really believe in him and are like, Yeah, go get him. Go show yourself to the world. However, that is not at all the case for in the very next verse John bluntly states for even his own brothers did not believe in him. So what at first glance sounds like encouragement, it was actually the sort of biting sarcasm that only brothers can really dish on another brother right? If you have brothers, you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh, so you're a big deal, are you? You're a hotshot. You've got your own disciples, do you? Well, no one who wants to be a celebrity hides in the shadows. Go, take center stage, have the spotlight on you. That way everyone can see what a hotshot you are. That is the tone in which we should read those words of Jesus' brothers. And now that we hear and understand that these words are actually, there's, there's sarcasm, which is a veil for a very disbelieving attitude towards him at this point, we understand where his brothers are coming from just a little bit better. Because this is the attitude they're coming with when we come now back to Mark chapter 3 and verse 21, where they make this assessment of their big brother, The crowds are packing in, he can't even feed himself, and they come to this conclusion that he's out of his mind. You know, it's hard for us to imagine Jesus' own family coming to the conclusion that he's out of his mind. But once we see that they're coming from a place of disbelief, it begins to make a lot more sense. Because while I'm sure that they still love Jesus as their brother, they clearly did not understand him, his true identity, And they most certainly did not believe in him. So armed with this attitude, they go out, they they track Jesus down with the mission to try to force him to come back home with them for his own good. He's out of his mind. Now, I'll pause here and make a small defense of the brothers. Consider, if you heard out of the blue of your own brother, someone you've known your entire life as being nothing more than a good carpenter, but suddenly he's, he's out and he's got this huge following and he's challenging ruling authorities, drawing big crowds, supposedly healing sick people and even casting out demons. If this was your brother, what would you think? You might be a little skeptical too. You might even think your brother is off his rocker because that's exactly what they were thinking. So while we can understand this unbelieving attitude of the brothers. Now we come to Mary, and Mary is another matter. It's hard to know exactly what was going through Mary's heart and mind at this time, for remember, unlike the brothers, Mary had personally experienced the angel's visitation, the miracle of Jesus' virgin birth, the visit of the Magi, fleeing to Egypt to escape King Herod's wrath and later when visiting Jerusalem, Jesus as a 12-year-old boy disappearing for three whole days. And when they finally found him, there he was in the temple teaching the teachers who were amazed at his understanding. All of those things and more Mary had experienced. And were told that she, she treasured these things and she pondered them in her heart. Knowing full well that this, her firstborn son, was very, very different than all of her other children. Now, also by this point, we know from John's Gospel in chapter 2 that at Mary's personal request, he had already performed his very first miracle of turning the water into wine at the wedding at Cana. So here, there's there's compelling evidence that Mary already believes in her son as the Messiah. She's seen his miracle-working power firsthand. There's no doubt within Mary as to who her son is, and yet we must not forget this important point. Mary was still a mother. Mary was still a mom. And therefore, despite all that she knew as a mom, she still worried about her son. She still wondered about his erratic behavior. And she was concerned that he was putting himself into an incredibly and increasingly dangerous situation. So it's not hard to imagine that when Mary arrived at the packed house, And then she couldn't even get in to see her own son. And then when someone in the crowd said something to her like, you know, I I doubt you're going to be able to even talk to him today. Jesus is so busy with this crowd that he's not even stopping to feed himself. And then like any good mother would, Mary gasps and says something like, he's not even eating. Oh, he's lost his mind. He needs to come home with me for some of mom's good home cooking. Right, so while she believes, there's still an earthly mother there who wants to take care of her son, protect him, and guard him, and feed him. And so these very human responses of Jesus' family, they are quite understandable. And they even demonstrate an admirable, an admirable level of concern for his well-being. But because they either, like the brothers, didn't believe in him, or like Jesus or pardon me, or like Mary at this point, simply didn't understand his mission, they've now put themselves in the position of actively trying to stop Jesus from doing the will of his Father in heaven. In this way, they have actually become his enemies. Now this is a serious matter. Remember back in Mark chapter one, verse 38. Jesus had been out praying in his, in his secret getaway for the night and the disciples have been looking for him and when they finally find him, they're like, everyone's looking for you, the crowds want healing. And Jesus said to them in verse 38, let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so I can preach there also for that is why I have come. And so here Jesus gave his, his purpose statement, his mission statement, the why. This is why I have come, is to do this work. This mission is the very reason I am on this earth. And so here we have Jesus' own family trying to stop him from doing the very thing, the very reason for which he had come to earth. Now, it's interesting as we consider this. Jesus' own family trying to stop the mission of heaven. Sometimes, as we live this life of faith depending on your circumstances your family upbringing sometimes even our own families can become a barrier or even in opposition to us doing god's will it can happen i remember one occasion where a young man came to me and he was deeply distraught because he had worked at turtle mountain bible camp he he loved it he wanted to go back the next summer He felt so strongly that this is exactly what God wanted him to be doing. But his own parents stood in the way. And they said, nope, you've got to get a job. You've got to make money and you've got to pay for school. And no, you can't go work at Bible camp. And so he was so conflicted because he wanted to, yes, honor his father and mother as as the word declares. But at the same time, he wanted to obey God because he felt so strongly that this was what God wanted him to do. And so in this way, his parents had actually become a barrier in opposition to him doing the will of God in his life. Let's look at Jesus' response to his own family. Verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, "'Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. "'Who are my mother?' And my brothers, Jesus asked. Now, this leads us into our first principle that I'd highlight for you today. And that principle is this. Being in close proximity to Jesus does not automatically make you a member of Jesus' true family. I'm going to say that again. Being in close proximity to Jesus does not automatically make you a member of Jesus' true family. Consider again that Jesus' own brothers had grown up with him. They had played together with him. They had worked together in the, the carpentry business. They had eaten together. They probably you know, slept next to each other for most of their lives. No one was in closer proximity to Jesus than his own brothers. And yet, they did not believe in him. And so when Jesus heard that they were out there looking for him, he asks the piercing question, Who are my mother and my brothers? Now, obviously, as Jesus asks this piercing question, it was obviously not them. For though physically, yes, they were his family, they are not part of his true family in this moment. Now, at first, it sounds like like he's blowing them off. But Jesus is not deliberately showing disrespect here. Instead, he is using this interruption to make the point that close proximity to him, even being a part of his biological family on earth, does not automatically make someone part of his true spiritual family. There's no defaults here. Even his own family did not automatically get in. And so in a similar way to Jesus' physical family, there is a very real danger for those of us who have been born and raised in close proximity to Jesus. In the sense that we we have been raised in a Christian family. If if that's your story like mine or you've been raised in a in a Christian family, your parents are believers, most of your family are believers and even in the extended family, most of your friends are too. You go to church, you've been raised in the church and Sunday school and going to Bible camp, VBS. And so therefore you are intimately familiar with the stories of Jesus. And so uh, don't get me wrong here, all of those things are positive. And yet, none of those things alone are what make you a member of Jesus' true family. So it begs the question, then what does? What does? Well, let's return to the words of Jesus. Verse 34, then he looked at those seated in a circle around him, and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And so here we come to the second principle, which is this. The true family of Jesus are those who do God's will. The true family of Jesus are those who do God's will. Now, what exactly does it mean to do God's will? Was Jesus, in fact, teaching some sort of a works-based salvation here based upon our doing? Well, not at all. And so we must put this into context to correctly understand. We have to go back to what Jesus has already been teaching repeatedly up until this point. Go back to Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, where Mark gives this summary statement of Jesus teaching everywhere he went, which was, the time has come, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the gospel. So this is the summary statement of all that Jesus has been teaching up till this point is repent of your sin and believe in the gospel. So this core message repent and believe has been consistent throughout. He's not suddenly throwing that to the curb and saying no now you got to work your way in. That's not what he's doing here. So we have to remember the context. Repent and believe followed by then specific call to specific men, come and follow me, leave it all behind. And so they did, four fishermen left their nets and boats, Levi left his tax collector's booth, and so too the other seven left their various occupations and lives behind to follow Jesus, to be with Jesus wherever he would lead them. So in context, what Jesus was saying is that the clear evidence of someone having truly repented and believed in him is revealed by them doing the will of the Father in their actions. So in other words, their their feet followed their confession. Now just to be clear, their doing did not save them, no. But their doing did reveal that they were saved. James 2 verse 14 explains this further. There James asks, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save him? Then he continues in verse 18, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. So in summary, The evidence of a changed heart, one that has repented and believed, the evidence is a changed life. So a member of Jesus' true family will be actively involved in doing God's will. And so as he points to the people in the circle around him, the context is that all of them in this circle, they have done that. They have left all else behind to follow Jesus. Their actions showed the genuineness of, of what had already taken place through their repentance and belief. Now let's think about that setting again. There in this inner circle of that pressing crowd. the very center stands Jesus. There are his closest disciples. They are there to serve Jesus to help him fulfill God's rescue mission for the world. So though they are not blood family, Jesus looks at them in love and he declares that you, you are my mother. You, you are my brother. You are my sister. And so all of these people from all these different various walks of life and backgrounds are suddenly called into Jesus' inner circle, not just as participants, but as family members, because their actions have revealed they have been born again into the family of God. Yet in contrast, outside the circle are Jesus' earthly family, They have not yet truly repented and believed, and so in their ignorance towards God's will, they are actively attempting to stop Jesus from fulfilling his rescue mission for the world. So in both cases, it was their actions that revealed the true position of their heart, either being outside the circle or inside in Jesus' true family. Jesus taught repeatedly in a wide variety of ways that truly repenting of sin And believing in him will be borne out in our actions of following and obedience. Matthew 7 verse 24 to 27 makes that clear. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And so again, Jesus is clearly saying that the wise builder isn't just about listening and hearing, it's about action. Are you putting into practice what he has said? Again, it is in the action. A man named George Mueller of Bristol, England exemplified what that sort of life can look like. For after being a wild, sinful youth in his own words, he came to faith in Christ in his early 20s. He then committed himself solemnly that he would live a life of faith and obedience to God no matter what that might cost him. Soon Mueller and his wife, sold all their earthly possessions, they founded an orphanage and lived by faith alone, making their needs and those of the orphans known only to God in prayer. They wouldn't ask anyone else for help. They only took it to the Lord in prayer. And as a result, they often faced insurmountable problems where they didn't have food or or didn't have, have so many things and yet always, sometimes at the very last moment, the the answer came. The provisions came. The obstacle was overcome. And so this built their faith in God to provide. And so their actions became more and more radical as their faith grew. An example of this comes in 1877. Mueller was on board a ship that was stalled off the coast of Newfoundland in a dense fog. The captain had been on the bridge for 24 hours when Mueller came to see him. Mueller told the captain that He had to be in Quebec by Saturday afternoon, to which the captain replied, It's impossible. The fog is too thick, and it's not lifting. Very well, said Mueller, if your ship cannot take me, God will find some other way, for I have never broken an engagement in 52 years, and it won't be the first now. Let's go down to the chart room and pray together. Well, the captain just stared at Mueller like he was some escapee from a lunatic asylum, but finally he said, fine, let's go pray. And so down they went. They prayed, and, pardon me, before they prayed, the captain said once more, Mr. Mueller, do you know how dense this fog is? To which Mueller replied, no, my eye is not on the density of the fog, but on the living God who controls every circumstance of my life, including this fog. And so then Mueller knelt down and prayed a heartfelt yet simple prayer. When he had finished, the captain was about to also pray. When Mueller put his hand on his shoulder and stopped him, said, No, it's okay. First, you don't believe that he will lift the fog. And second, I believe that he already has. There's no need whatsoever to pray for it a second time. Go, open the door. And so the captain again, looking at him like he was dealing with a crazy man, walked over, opened the door, and sure enough, the fog had lifted and the sun was shining. You see, Jesus' call for us to repent, believe, and to follow him requires a radical commitment that requires our action. For Jesus never hesitated to call people to abandon their jobs, their homes, and even their families. To be radically obedient to his call. And just as with those first disciples, just as with George Mueller, it looks risky to leave everything behind. It looks risky to live life in this way. And yes, people will sometimes look at you as though you've escaped from an asylum. Sometimes that may even be people in your own family who say, he's out of his mind. And yet, when we know our Father, and when we believe our Father, and we walk in that faith, it makes all the difference. Mark 10, verses 28 to 30, we read, then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you, Lord. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, No one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So in summary, Jesus promises that the risk of leaving everything, no matter what that is, The risk of leaving it behind to follow him is more than outweighed by the rewards, both in this life and, most importantly, in the eternal life yet to come. And one of those very real and practical rewards that we have in this life is the blessing that we have already received right here and right now in this family of faith. In this church body, this is a part of the living fulfillment of what Jesus said that you will receive a hundredfold whatever family you left behind because this, this is a spiritual family. And so in this family, there are multiple mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters, grandpas and grandmas, grandchildren, all around us. This is a part of the reward that the Lord talked about. For even, listen, even if in this life, You are an earthly orphan. When we are born again and adopted into Jesus' true family, we become each other's brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers in the faith. And by God's will, his true family is not yet finished growing. So that means we as Jesus' family, we have the opportunity and the privilege to continue to do the will of God our Father By serving Jesus in this time, in this place, in this town, in this nation. By serving each other, both in this spiritual family and in the world around us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, what a privilege to be counted in your family. That you are not even ashamed to call us brothers and sisters in the faith. For we are born again into the family of God our Father. What a privilege to be called children of God. And that is what we are. For you have done it. You have made it possible for us, Lord. And so I I pray, Father, that in this life, though often we deal with the heartache that comes with differences in our earthly families, we pray, Lord, that you would more than replace that, more than reward that through the blessings we receive by being a part of your spiritual family. And that we recognize that those around us in this family of faith, Lord, though sometimes we, we even, like family, have differences and have disagreements, and yet it is here, Lord, in our shared faith in you, our Father, that we recognize that we have this true family. For this family is not just for this life, but no, we will be together in the next life, in the kingdom to come, when we will be before you forever. And so we pray, Lord, that this great truth that we are a part of your family being built up through the generations and all those who have gone before us, that that it spans beyond even our imagination of how large it is growing, and yet it is not finished growing. And we thank you that according to your mercy and your will, it is still growing even today and even here in our midst. And so we pray, Lord, continue to grow your family. May it expand as you will, Lord, and that you would add to this fellowship, and to this family, those who are being saved, as you will. In Jesus' name, amen.